Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now. Runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome back to the Green Dot EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. My name's Hal Bryan and I'm EAA's managing editor for print and digital content and publications. And it's uh, it's another hosts only show today and we have a lot of fun with these. As much as we love having guests, it's nice when the three of us get back together. So uh, over on my left at the kids table. <laughs> my cousins will be proud. Yes. I'm Chris Henry, the EAA Museum uh, uh, Programs Coordinator. And at the, uh, the third Spoke in the triangle? I don't know. <laughs> Geometry. Sure. Tom Sharpentier, Government Relations Director. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we thought we would get together today and uh, and uh, sort of step out of the the some of the, the more specific topic-focused uh, episodes we do, or I should say guest-focused episodes, and we want to uh, talk about uh, how you get started into, into flying. Where do you begin? Uh, how that works? And I, I'm, I'm sure as we talk through this stuff, each of us will share a little bit of our own stories. But it's, uh, you know, our goal is to talk to uh, anybody out there who uh, is uh, interested enough uh, to be listening and be maybe tied to EA in some way as a member or, or, or as an aviation enthusiast. But now you're thinking about uh, what it might be to uh, to fly yourself. Um, and something I guess we want to put out there pretty strongly up front is uh, – there's a lot of people into aviation and there's a lot of ways you can be interested in and involved in aviation. You don't have to be a pilot to be, uh, to be involved. Uh, there's a, a million other things you can do, but, uh, <clears throat> all three of us have taken that journey at different times in our lives and it's meant a lot to us. So we thought that's what we'd, uh, what's, what we'd talk about. So who wants to kick us off? I guess I, I can uh, go ahead and start with uh, kind of, um, where you might start, you know, with uh, with getting your getting your license and uh, getting involved in the aviation community, um, we're kind of coming. Is up- now a good time to say certificate, not license? Yeah, pro- <laughs> you know, I am the government relations director. I should know that. Yeah, okay. One so- demerit for Tom. Uh, oh my yeah. goodness, that's yes. such a, that's as an aside. That's something we struggle with on our editorial team all the time. Is yeah. people write a story and say, "I was so excited, I got my pilot's license." So that's absolutely that's great. Technically, it's a, in the U.S. It's a certificate. Other countries have licenses, and we used to have licenses. But, uh, uh, but anyway, we're off on a tangent. That's okay because aviation is full of quirky details. I will just say that my certificate is printed on a plastic card that is in the license holder of my wallet next to my driver's license. So, <laughs> <laughs> forgive the slip up. But yes, excellent. Um, so we came up with a couple of questions uh, regarding um, you know what what you might be thinking of, and we hope we hit uh, most of them, if not all of them. But uh, the first first kind of question is uh, how do you get involved with um, the the airport community? Uh, how do you get involved with the aviation community, especially when there's a lot of uh, fences? Uh, almost every airport nowadays has a big fence, some with barbed wire on them around them. It kind of uh, looks very uninviting, and it's something that we in the government relations community are, uh, are kind of sick over, um, but it is kind of the reality of our of um, the last 20 years of, uh, of aviation security. Um, I guess I'll start off on this question and just say that um, there's a number of ways to uh, kind of get your feet wet. Um, obviously, you're going to be learning to fly either at a flight school or at a flying club. So selecting a good one is important, and you may need to shop around between different airports to find one that works for you. Uh, So don't get too married to the idea that you're going to be flying at your local airport. 
uh, because you may not. And I, I, uh, when I learned to fly, I was living in Boston. There were a number of airports that were closer to me, but I went uh, at the one about an hour and a half away uh, just because um, the community there was a little bit nicer. It was a little bit less busy airport, and the flight school there in particular was very good. Um, so shop around flight schools. Uh, flight schools are usually very inviting. Give them a call. Visit. Maybe even take a flight at, at a couple once you've narrowed down your decision. Um, we could talk maybe a little bit about you know how to how to select a good one. Flying clubs are also great ways to get involved, and then of course the, the EA chapter, um, if there is one at the, at the airport, can be very very helpful. Just know that if you start with an EAA chapter, the flight school or flying club at the field may not be the right fit for you. You may wind up being involved in the EA chapter at one airport that might be great, and maybe a flight school at another, and that's perfectly fine too. Um, so that would be maybe some of my first thoughts on that, and I'd kick it over to rest of you guys for what well, it's a really great point tom uh and i think anybody who's thinking about starting on this journey of learning is is uh you've got to remember you know you're the customer you've got to remember that uh that it's vital that you have a good relationship with the overall flight school if it is such a thing and in particular with your individual instructor and there's a whole lot of different criteria you can use to choose it's interesting to me you pointed out that you ended up learning to fly at an airport that was much farther away um because it's i have always said that and i think especially when you're learning flying is one of the easiest things in the world not to do it's really easy to say, oh, I'm so busy. Oh, I'm really tired. I had a big, long day at work. I've, you know, maybe I don't feel great. Whatever. It's expensive. There's all these reasons that are constantly forcing you not to do it. And for some people, you know, an hour and a half drive could be a disincentive. So it's, uh, it's, it's impressive to me that you made that choice, realizing that, that uh, the quality of the school and the fit maybe more importantly for you in that school was more important and was more of an incentive than any disincentive in uh, in having a long drive yeah and, and for me there are a number of different factors i mean the um uh the cost was one of them the the actual cost of the instruction but also the um the actually the logistics of me getting there was a little bit easier in fitchburg than it was at the airports closer because i didn't have a car so i wound up uh, you know taking the train out there which and it was like uh less than a mile from the local train station so i'd just go out there with my bicycle and that's how i'd get to the uh get to the airport um but yeah when i say shop around flight schools i think that is really important because um it's it, you know, you're going to have a lot of factors that you're going to have to think about. Cost is certainly one of them. Don't don't shy away from that being part of the equation. Um, but just know that you know the uh, um, the the cheapest may not be the best fit for you, and also the most expensive doesn't necessarily mean um, that much better service. They might just be sure. using newer aircraft or um, have more of a an, an operation that's geared toward other areas. Um, you know, and that's not to disparage one way or the other uh, how flight schools operate. You just have to find the one that you're comfortable with. Right. I, I really want to stress that uh, you, know, you mentioned EA chapters and, you know, we don't want to be uh, we're not here to be corporate uh, corporate shills. You know, we'll sell advertising when we decide we want to do that. But uh, um, I hope I didn't just alienate future advertisers. Note to self. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, but the EA chapter idea, um, because when you when you do come up to an airport and you see a fence and you look around and you say, "What do I do?" So calling that fly school can be sort of a way through the door. But you're, you know, you're doing that, and you're you and the flight school are sort of auditioning each other as as business partners in a way. Are you going to go in and, and make these transactions? 
if you've got a good uh, active EAA chapter nearby, that's a great way to get in the door, to talk to people you're going to get, you know, if there's 30 people in a chapter meeting, you're going to get 30 different ideas on on uh, flight schools and how to learn and all these things. But it's also, it's a great place to find a mentor. It's a great place. Uh, in fact, we even have a formalized program, our Flying Start uh, program, uh, that uh chapter will give you a presentation that sort of lays out all the things about learning to fly and then they'll assign you to somebody you'll take what we call an eagle flight with them you get a free introductory flight and now you have a direct one-on-one relationships with somebody who can be a mentor as you go forward and um, those of you out there that are already pilots be mentors it's it's crucial and if you're if you're thinking about starting that journey then work on finding one let uh, help you find one well, when you think about it too, how many of us are here because of somebody in our life, our mentors, wherever, whoever they may be. And, you know, and that, again, not to sound like a commercial, but I think that's one of the things that is really great, not only about EA chapters, but also the air tours program with our B-17, our B-25 uh, eventually here is that, um, you know, as a controller in the Ford Tri-Motor, as, as, a, as a controller, you know, I, I worked on the other side of that fence and I would see people who felt that the local airport was just kind of this big fenced off piece of land that they weren't necessarily welcome on. Yet when stuff like this would happen, when the EA chapters would have their pancake breakfast or Young Eagle rallies, when the 17 or the Tri-Motor would show up, you know, suddenly the community felt really engaged that this was their, their home airport. And then once you're in that environment, you know, you start look. Yeah, you go for the B seventeen or the four, but then you start looking at airplanes taking off. And then you you know you start daydreaming of, of could I do this? I mean, it's a really cool inspirational moment. I think for a lot of people to come out there and see that, and that's their that's their introduction into it. Yeah, and I'd also say that, and I've mentioned this before about um, what a chapter uh, chapter members and and uh, and mentors and and other pilot organizations can really bring to the table. There, um, you know, we all who have gotten our licenses know how hard it is and also uh, the kind of sacrifices you make you know financially and and time-wise to do it um it's uh and oftentimes you know when i was doing my training i would get to just go flying you know for a weekend with uh, one of the uh one of the pilots in the in the club and it was really great to just you know be able to go on a little fun flight and not have instruction going on and not be you know not, not necessarily be able to log that but you know sure. just be able to see how other people fly their airplanes and and uh have fun doing that and kind of what waited for me on the other side of my check ride uh which was really great motivation Right. And motivation is uh, is just crucial. I, you know, I, I said a moment ago, flying is easy not to do. And it's uh, there's it's something that uh, you have to challenge yourself. You've got a lot to you've got a lot to learn. You've got to put some uh, serious time commitment. You've got to study. Um, and uh, and there's a financial uh, commitment as well. But it's one of those things that once you've done it, it uh, it's with you forever it it stays with you and uh you know barring anything uh, uh barring anything that make you uh, would make you need to call tom for some help with government advocacy uh, they'll nobody will ever take it away from you um, yeah i know exactly what you mean like when i was in school you had you had a million things getting thrown at you and and it was like oh man i gotta go fly you know it's my time to go up on, on their schedule but yet and when you, once you got out there and you got the airplane pre-flighted and you actually got up there, the rest of that stuff just melted away and you were kind of like, this is it. I'm just, 
I can relax and just focus on what I'm doing here and right. that's it, you know, and it all kind of just falls away. Like it, it really does. Um, uh, you know, we, we did an episode, uh, not too long ago with, uh, uh, Jackie, I believe Reese was her last name. And, uh, she used a great term that I really liked, uh, that I realized I've thought of it this way my whole life. I just never articulated such, but she's, when she goes flying, she's, she's zooming out. You know, she looks at your whole world. You're zoomed in. You're focused. I got to do this, 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 this. Then you get in the, up in the airplane or whatever you're flying. You zoom out. You see the bigger picture. It, quite literally, it it yeah. it does very literally give you a different perspective. And I think uh, key to that motivation is when you've decided you're going to go after this, is uh, is never forgetting why you want to do this and and whatever the whatever the obstacles uh, there are whatever the challenges there are uh, it's worth it it is uh, it is absolutely worth it so one thing we should uh, we should talk a little bit about um, it's it's more fun to, to wax philosophical than get mired in details but uh, <clears throat> if somebody just says I want to fly you know where do I go to school and start doing that? There's there's some decisions they've got to make uh, up front. So, um, Tom, maybe kick us off talking about uh, some of those early choices they might make in terms of what kind of flying to pursue. Yeah, and there's a lot of choices out there. Um, there are a number of different levels of pilot certification that you might consider uh, and, a different, and different types of flying, too. Um, we oftentimes think of airplanes, right? You know, uh, usually single-engine airplanes is the place to start usually ones that take off and land on land um if you're in alaska maybe you actually have the opportunity to do your initial on a float plane uh, or something like that but uh but for most of us it's a it's a single engine land plane um there are a couple of levels of certification that you can think about uh there is the private pilot which is by far the most popular um that allows you to do um pretty much any kind of flying that you would want to do non-commercially you could fly during the daytime you could fly at nighttime you can uh, fly a wide variety of airplanes with any number of uh, passengers on board and then there's a recreational pilot, which is a less utilized uh, certificate, certainly. Um, one of the problems that kind of uh, has doomed it over the years was that it originally wasn't supposed to have a medical requirement with it. And the uh, Department of Transportation snuck in at the last minute when it was going through the certification process. So rec pilot has a few fewer um, requirements. So it's a little cheaper up front to get your rating, uh, to get your certificate. Um, but it does limit you a little bit in what you can do. You can only fly during the daytime. The, the types of airplanes you can fly are limited, and you still have to get the same medical certificate that a private pilot does. So oftentimes, usually people just opt for the private certificate. And then many of you have heard of Sport Pilot, which uh, was um, is only about 15 years old. It, it was uh, something that EAA uh, pushed very hard for back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, and that allows you to fly um, currently, we're working on hopefully changing it, but uh, currently anything up to 1,320 pounds if it's a land plane. Um, you only need 20 hours of uh, training versus 40 for the private. Um, although a lot of people will go over both of those, um, you know, depending on um, depending on what you need work on and how often you fly. Uh, but that's a great option for a lot of people. A lot of classic airplanes like Cubs and Champs and Chiefs you can fly with a sport pilot rating, and also a lot of uh, uh, newer aircraft you can fly with sport uh, with your your light sport as well your sport pilot, excuse me, as well. Um, we do our sport pilot academy here at EAA with, uh, with RV-12s. So that's something you can think about. And the, and the big advantage of sport pilot is that you only need a driver's license as your medical certificate. 
Right. And, you know, I kind of look at Sport Pilot as delivering on, and this is an oversimplification, but I see Sport Pilot as delivering really on the intent of a lot of the thinking behind the recreational pilot way back when. Yeah. And um, um, so I'd be curious to hear, I mean, I, I don't remember, I've seen numbers like somewhere, but I don't remember what they were, like how many recreational pilots there actually are. I know it's, a, I think, a very small number, and certainly Sport Pilot has become much more popular. Yeah, last I checked, Rec Pilot was under 10,000, but people should actually really look at it because um, it does, if, if your goal is to get go through the, the process quicker and um, cheaper, you know, uh, up front, if you don't have a lot of money to spend on your training, and, you know, training does wind up being quite a fast burn rate of money because you're flying very frequently you're paying for an instructor and stuff like that and if that's an issue to you you might want to look at rec pilot you can always upgrade to to private later right um it'll get you flying it'll get you flying with your friends you can do a lot with it um but it is uh yeah it it is it was kind of doomed by that by that medical uh uh issue and i I think there's only about i want to say seven thousand rec pilots in the country it might not even be that much wow that's yeah, that's an interesting an interesting one. But as long as it's on the books, check it out. It it might be uh, it might be of interest to you. Um, I want to talk about medical stuff in just a second. But before we do that, uh, there's uh, there's you you mentioned sort of single engine land airplanes are 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 certainly that's typical. But we have the whole world of ultralights out there. Yep. So to uh, to fly an ultralight, there's uh, there. Are, very few legal requirements on the part of the pilot. It's really the limitations of the aircraft. And uh, uh, Tom, I'll start these. You can jump in, or Chris, either guys can jump in when I start to forget. But uh, if there's an aircraft, or not even an aircraft, technically an ultralight vehicle, mm-hmm. it must weigh uh, 254 pounds or less, yep. or less than 254 pounds. Empty. Okay, empty. Yep. Um, it uh, carries, is it a maximum of five gallons of fuel? Yep. Single seat. Uh, so there's no carrying passengers. So this is you flying on your own. Uh, and the speed uh, requirements, it was a maximum level speed. Is it 55 miles per hour? Ooh, I think you stumped me on that one. I'm not sure. Easily uh, findable one. on the internet. Yeah. But there's, just bear in mind, there's a speed requirement uh, as well. Um, but the biggest thing is that you're flying something very, very lightweight. Um, and hitting that 254-pound mark is, uh, is, is doable, but can be challenging. But... You can you can just get in and go legally. Do we recommend that? Absolutely not. Under no circumstances <laughs> do we think that's a good idea. You you absolutely need training. I was lucky enough. I when I was fourteen years old, I soloed an ultralight, um, and that was after lots and lots of taxi tests and up and down the runway. And this was in an era when. Um, the the sort of the the vague slightly wild westish era when there were some two seat uh, trainers out there that hadn't quite been figured out yet so I was able to uh, to do a bit of training with somebody too before I did my first few hops down the runway by myself but it's a great way to get in and of course there are uh, there are gliders uh, as well gliding is a great way to get involved in flying if you're a younger person you can solo a glider at 14 and uh, and then you can get your private at 16 in a glider yeah. Yeah, and I came very close to going for gliders first. Um, there was a there's a pretty developed soaring club in my area, and um, you know when I priced it out, it was much cheaper 
than going for powered. Um, what it came down to for me was I, I kind of knew that I wanted to fly powered, and that was really what drove my decision. Sure. But especially if you're a younger person, my gosh, I mean, you could do a lot worse than to learn the fundamentals on gliders first. Right. I mean, um, you know, the, the the greatest example of this probably was the uh, the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe during uh, <laughs> yes. the early part of World War II. They had the best pilots in the world, and they that was because they had to train in gliders. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's exactly right. Yeah, it's and you know we look back on that uh, now. In fact, I was just digging through a bunch of uh, uh, a bunch of older magazines. Uh, I think it was called the Sportsman Pilot, great magazine from the the 30s. Not to be confused with the later Jack Cox iteration. And uh, by the time you get to about 1932, 33 or so, when they do their roundups of flying around the world, every issue has got uh, all this activity with German glider pilots. And, you know, back then it's uh, it's sort of a, you know, oh, good, look, uh, look good for them. Look at yeah. that. They've got, sort of they've got all these young people that are learning to fly. And, of course, now through the hindsight lens of history, all we're seeing is, uh, is the future Luftwaffe in training. But... Uh, all that aside, yeah. um, you know, gliding is a, is a great way to, to get into it and uh, a great opportunity, I think, for somebody who's, who may not even have a driver's license yet but can go out and actually fly. And I, in my opinion, it'll make you a better pilot. I always love when uh, there's some sort of miraculous, you know, landing or something that's in the media and you always find it out that like the pilot who pulled it off is like well yeah i was also a glider pilot you know like, right. like the gimli glider or something yeah the gimli know, glider that yeah. you know sully sully yeah uh, you exactly. know landing in the, the the miracle on the hudson all those sorts sorts of things i do think it makes you uh, makes you a better pilot because to to us as powered pilots you know what what is an emergency landing is a normal landing in the glider yeah. Uh, and, uh, um, that's always something that I wished I had done, uh, more of, uh, over the years and something I wish I had started when I was, uh, when I was a young teenager, but I think I was too busy with star Wars and stuff at the time. Understandable. Well, it happens. <laughs> so let's talk about, uh, let's talk about the medical for just, uh, just a moment. Um, this is always an interesting topic for me because you don't want to, you never want to scare anybody away and nobody should be, nobody should be scared. Um, but there's, you have to do a little bit of homework. If you, if you're on a particular medication or, or have, you know, if you have a, a medical condition that has a name, I think maybe <laughs> then do a little digging, do a little bit of reading, uh, because what you, what you want to try to avoid is, showing up uh, to an FAA-approved doctor, what we call an AME, Aviation Medical Examiner, which is another sort of terrible name in aviation. Um, medical examiners don't, in the traditional medicine, don't work on live people. Yeah. But an Aviation Medical Examiner, you want to try to avoid going to them uh, without having done your homework and then just getting denied out of the denied out of the gate having be, being denied a medical has repercussions when if you uh, if you study up if there's if there's something that you have that might need an extra test or a little bit of extra documentation you can do that up front yeah I, I that's a really good summary hell I, I think um, uh, so I, I as many of you know, I do aeromedical counseling for EAA, and um, I do get calls from, unfortunately, I get calls from kids, um, you know, who are going for their, uh, who, who dream of being commercial pilots, and they've already gotten to the point that they've applied for a medical, and then they find out that something they've been diagnosed with um, is going to be a problem. And it's not just kids, it's, you know, it's, it's anybody who's, who's getting into it for the first time. Um, so it is very important to do your homework first, and I think Hal uh, covered it pretty well. It's, uh, um, Start with the list of medications you're taking 
and um, just kind of uh, the thing I oftentimes do, honestly, this is what I do when people call is I'll Google the, uh, the if I don't know it off the top of my head, I'll Google the, uh, the medication and just FAA. And I'll usually find either an article or somewhere in the uh, AME guide about um, uh, what the potential repercussions of that are. Um, and also the, the condition. Um, so if you've ever been diagnosed with anything ever in your life, you're required to report it. And that's uh, um, where uh, some, some people get tripped up. Um, the good news is that you can get a certification for pretty much anything. So if you do want to go through to a private pilot and maybe beyond, if you you know if you're looking at maybe uh, flying commercially, you can definitely overcome a lot. But there is um, definitely some um, some pain uh, in the process for certain uh, uh, certain medications testing that needs to be done. A lot of waiting, a lot of nervousness, um, and you can avoid some of that just by doing some of your homework up front. Um, as Hal said, uh, one of the big catch twenty twos for sport pilot is that you don't need a medical to become a sport pilot. But if you've ever had a medical denied, you can't be one. So if you never apply, you can't be denied. But if you do, um, you may have to deal with that. And one other point I just want to um, uh, put across here is um, flying can be a physically and mentally demanding thing. Most of us, um, at, at least at some point in our lives, are able to uh, pursue it. Um, but that is something that you do, you know, even when you're flying as a sport pilot or a glider pilot where you don't need a medical certificate, you still have to self-certify that you are fit to fly an airplane uh, or, sure. air, or any kind of aircraft or vehicle. Um, and that um, is sometimes a hard decision that we have to make. Um, but, you know, for the vast majority of people, we can get it done. And if you have any questions about that, I'd certainly be happy to ask. Just call the... Uh, Call EAA and uh, and ask for me. I uh, have to point out that Tom is not actually a doctor. Uh, however, <laughs> he uh, did take my appendix out. <laughs> well, yes, he did, and he did a fine job. Uh, but uh, that was one of the fun things about uh, working here. And uh, right when you started, Tom was watching, uh, watching, and sitting near you and hearing you on the phone uh, from the from the get go. Uh, just soaking up and then being able to share so much expertise in such a short time um i i think you're due an honorary doctorate so so chris start a bogus medical school i will as your first act i will yeah the official school of 4077 (laughs) exactly all right well um one item i uh that we might want to move on to um uh, that was a good discussion of medical but you know you always want to keep that we could do a whole series of episodes on that and if whenever we want but um Time and money. That is something that uh, is always always a problem for all of us in many areas of our lives, but it's particularly an issue uh, when it comes to uh, to training. Um, maybe these are two linked subjects, but maybe we should take them individually. Um, wh- what are our thoughts about setting aside the right amount of time for training and maybe also timing it within your life? Well, I think it depends on what you're looking to do. I mean, if I, I think we should break it down just thinking out loud here are you looking to do this professionally as like an airline pilot or are you talking about is this fun this is something you've just always wanted to do and you want to you know enjoy aviation from a recreational standpoint because then it's a little bit different when i went to school um I was going to school and it was a college uh, curriculum that you were following where they told you when you were going to fly however when you know you're going to go do it for fun it's it should be fun and you could you you should do it as many times a week i mean you should be at least doing it i would guess if you're in training at least two to three times a week you should try to get up flying if you guys uh, agree with that that's a that's a great point about the the consistency of it so i guess first of all before i get into that the you know even if you are deciding to go on to do it as a career you should do it for life for fun 
no matter what. And then, you know, careers come and go, but boy, your passions, uh, your passions should, should just grow and be something that you're always in touch with. But that, uh, uh, People look at the time requirements and say, well, it's a minimum of 40 hours and, you know, averages are, are somewhere north of at least 60 hours of what it really, really takes to train. And people will look at that and say, well, I could do that, you know, in a year if I flew once a week or, you know, whatever. You start doing that math. But uh, the at some point, the, the longer the, the wait time between lessons, the longer it will take you total the longer it will take you overall because you uh you start to forget you you start to uh lose those new good habits that you're building you know your muscle memory goes a little bit um so certainly just anecdotally based on my experiences that two to three times a week would be would definitely be something to to push for and really really do your best to budget that in because if you do it two to three times a week then maybe you're done in 50 hours if you do it once a week maybe you're closer to those people who do it in 80 hours yeah and i would just add that um and this kind of segues into the money uh aspect of it is there are certain times in your life too and i'm kind of speaking to uh to the younger folks in the audience there are certain times in your life where you're going to have a lot of time and maybe money isn't there but you can you can compensate for that so like when i started training i was it was straight out of college it was my first job out of college so i was not making much money at all um but I also was like extremely uncommitted with anything else, you know, um, I was basically just working and flying and, uh, that turned out to be a good time in my life to do it. Um, and it is as, as uh, Hal and Chris have noted, I mean, it is something for life. So even if you, um, you're able to train now and really not do much, you know, for maybe even the foreseeable future, um, you still have that certificate in your pocket that you can always come back to. Nobody can take a pilot certificate away from you. The only thing, um, that you have to worry about down the road is potentially a medical certificate and, um, you know, getting current again. Right. Um, or do something, doing something like horrendously evil and stupid. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's another different show. That's a, that's a whole different show. We yeah. save that for the red dot. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But yeah. Um, uh, so, so yeah, there are times in your life where you'll have more time to do it and just make sure you do have the time to devote to it. If you have, you know, excessive work and family commitments, you're going to have trouble, um, you know, setting aside that time and you have to just make sure that everybody's on board with the time that you're going to be devoting to this because it does be, it does start to dominate your life for a little while. It really does. And, you know, when I, uh, um, as the, uh, as the oldest member of the, the group, um, I, the older you get, the more you sort of reflect and you think and things. And um, I find myself looking at uh, at the the time I spend or the time I have spent in my life, looking at it much more clearly as as a series of choices. Uh, and it's like, did I, you know, boy, I, I wish I would have done X, Y, or Z. And I, I don't. I, I do my best to live so I don't have those regrets, but hypothetically, you know, you look back and say, well, I wish I would have done X, Y, or Z. Well, I didn't have time. I said, well, I can quote probably start to finish every episode of The Office. Yeah. And that's what, uh, nine seasons, uh, you know, <laughs> 20 episodes. How many hours have I, and how many times have I watched that through? And I'll never, you know, I, I enjoy that. I, I love TV. I love movies. I, we all have, we, we can all talk movies and TV shows. Um, but that for me, that just personally, that's an example where I can look and say, well, okay, I had, I found time to spend X number of hours on this. 
I, I probably could choose to spend that time and spend X number of hours on that. Um, I'm very grateful that I did that at an early age uh, with a private pilot certificate and an instrument rating and stuff uh, 30 plus years ago. Um, but uh, but that's something that everybody has to ask themselves. Um, and speaking of age, real quick, before we get away from time and back into uh, uh, money, um, there's a, a dear, dear friend of mine, Laurel Lippert, who's a speaker and has written a number of books uh, about flying and things. She woke up on her 40th birthday and uh, and just, you know, a small airplane flew over. And she said, I've always wanted to know how to do that. And she didn't have any friends in aviation. I don't know that she'd even, she may not have even been up in a small airplane. She didn't know anybody at the airport, but she just made that commitment. And by her 41st birthday, she was a private pilot. On her 50th birthday, she woke up and said, I love flying so much, I want to share it with people. I want to be a CFI. And she just uh, she just went for it. And um, and I, I love that example. Um, you know, of course, when I, when I met her and she told me this story, I thought 40 was kind of old. Now I realize that, you know, 40 <laughs> is the new 12. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and 50 is like 21. Yeah. Um, but still... Uh, it's uh, I, I I don't think you're I don't think you're ever within some practical limits. You're you're never too old to start. You're never too old to go for it. If you're a young person and you're thinking about it now, I think it will be easier for you as a as a teenager or a young twenty something uh, than it is when you're 50, 60, 70 years old. Um, so boy, if you're if you're out there and you're thinking about it, go for it. Um, Want to talk about money? Yeah, absolutely. I like talking about money. Right. <laughs> By the way, 40 is the new 12. Is that why I'm at the kids' table? Is yes, that, exactly. That, that right? exactly. <laughs> well, so, I mean, it, it's all different. When I started, uh, I want to say it was like maybe five grand to get your private. And just talking about single engine land private. Just like anything else, it, it, it varies and it's gone up. So I think the I, average I don't know is seven to 10 now. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's, you know, and, and I, I guess I look at it this way like, that's not a small amount of money but it's not a considering what you get back i mean would you trade do you even remember losing that money at this point that's what i always tell people you know when, right. you, when you go what i always tell folks when we talk about going to to fly on the b17 and it was 450 bucks my first ride i bought was when we were running fuddy duddy i can't remember that 450 bucks but i remember that flight on fuddy duddy you know the b17 so i mean I think you need to take a look at, you know, is $7,000 worth it for you? But I guarantee you that the minute you're up there flying a plane by yourself, it's worth it. Right. I mean, there's nothing like it. And, and when you think about what you spend on a what you spend on a car, I mean, yeah. a car is kind of a necessary thing in your life, but but you know, do you get a do you get a ten thousand dollar car instead of a twenty thousand dollar car, and maybe you've got some some leftover to play with, um, or or what people spend on you know uh, other sort of power sports and other hobbies and things like that. That money adds up, and if if something's worth it, it's worth it, and it's gonna it's gonna take an investment. Um, and there's uh, luckily there's there's. Uh, a lot of uh, there's a lot of options i mean you can join a flying club tom you talked about that a little bit that can be an inexpensive way to get access to an airplane um there are uh, i i actually did in my uh early 30s i was going after a couple of endorsements um so i just needed to go and you know get 10 hours in this and then 10 hours in this other thing and just kind of plow through it um i did a uh, i did a short-term student loan that's the only student loan i ever took in my life but i was able to do a sally may student loan and as a 30 
plus year old to uh, to do some extra flying that I otherwise hadn't really budgeted for. So there's options out there. Um, but one of the, the biggest things we can talk about, of course, is, uh, well, before I get to that, our Sport Pilot Academy is another great way to do it because that that's a three-week commitment. Um, it, it's about $10,000, but you come. Uh, you spend your three weeks. It's all in- inclusive. It's immersive. Lots of other great aviation experiences along the way. And when you're done, you're you're done. You're set. You come out of it all done. But uh, um, but we have uh, we have a lot of other financial ways we can help student pilots as well. Yeah, and just before we uh, before we get into scholarships, real quick, I, I just wanted to uh, to add um, that you know some of the best financial advice I ever got uh, from my dad was always you know if you to have enough money, you either need to um, make more or want less, <laughs> and uh, uh, and you kind of need to do both when you're um, mm-hmm. you know w- w- at least at least in my experience that was um, th- th- that was what I needed to do when I was learning to fly. You know, you really dial down your expenses, as Hal and Chris said, uh, and you um, you know in, in my case, I was I was fortunate enough to be able to take on a weekend job uh, to help pay for it. But the other thing that's really helpful is that um, at least in the traditional model, not necessarily like our Sport Pilot Academy or something like that, but in, t- in the traditional model, it's pay as you go. And, you know, if you take up to, you know, say a year to go through your, your training, um, that's, uh, for some people, that's more manageable. Sure. And you also can save money by putting down a certain amount in blocks with certain flight schools, you know, like some schools will give you back um, $100 for every thousand you put down or something like that. That's, that's a free flight or almost a free flight in there. Absolutely. So, yeah. So, uh, we've mentioned, uh, we've teased a couple of times that EA has scholarships available. Uh, we have, um, I, I mean, a number of them that are on our website, and we also tend to, uh, you know, we like to wave the flag when partner organizations may have a scholarship to offer. But certainly, our our biggest uh, current scholarship program is available through our local chapters, and we've partnered with a group uh, called the Ray Foundation, and they underwrite um, for us. Uh, it's one point two million dollars in scholarships every year. It's a it's a staggering act of generosity on their part and an amazing investment in uh, in in the pilot community. And uh, effectively, what it is is a um, a chapter can nominate a uh, a prospective student pilot, and when they meet that criteria, then they share that with us. Um, and as long as that criteria is met, then that student uh, will get in total a ten thousand dollars scholarship that uh, that generally takes them from zero uh, through their check ride. And there's some milestones to meet along the way, and some other requirements and things. But uh, <clears throat> when you think about that, when we're giving away one point two million bucks a year uh, uh, at uh, thanks to their generosity or the Ray Foundation, and that's in ten thousand dollar increments, so that's, so that's one hundred and twenty. Uh, 120 new pilots uh, every year. And the great thing about that is that it comes with mentoring. That's a requirement is you have to have a mentor at your local chapter is going to help guide you through, uh, through all these things. And we, uh, one of the ugly facts that you never like to talk too much about, about flight training is there is across the board. If somebody takes that first lesson, um, if you count them as a, as a student pilot, there is about a, 20% 20% success rate and the 80% just one reason or another don't finish. And that's appalling. It's, it's depressing. It's a miserable statistic. It's one that none of us should be proud of, but within the confines of our Ray scholarship program, thanks in, 
uh, thanks to our chapters involvement and the local and the mentoring and things that you get, we're more than ninety percent success rate in terms of students finishing, which is uh, which is something I think we can all be proud of. And it's it's uh, it's thanks to our chapters, thanks to the Ray Foundation and and uh, and people's donations that help support the program, and most importantly, the time that volunteers spend uh, helping mentor and guide a new generation of pilots. Yeah, definitely. It's 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 really fantastic. I mean, in all the years I've spent in aviation, it's uh, um, I've never really seen anything like the, the the level of scholarships that we're able to offer right now, um, and and it's uh, it's very encouraging. I mean, to, to read the stories of the students who have gone through these Ray Aviation Scholars and and uh, and all of that has been uh, very very exciting. Uh, so I, I I think as we look back on time and money, uh, those concerns, it's. It may seem impossible to you out there, but but uh, you, you take it from those of us who are, you know, we, we're taking a breath and we're able to talk to you from the, the luxury of being the other side of that big wall. We've all crossed over that, that big wall. And we'll look back at uh, anybody who's starting and saying, you know what, if, if you choose to do it, if you, if you prioritize it, uh, you will find the, the time and money. And, and maybe we can help with a scholarship. Maybe there's other ways that that happens. You get involved in a flying club, whatever that is, um, you, you can do it, and it is worth it. Yeah. I'd just like to give one more um, – talk about one more item um, on the uh, – and just kind of on managing uh, training, uh, just very briefly um, – so there's a number of things that you need to become a pilot. There's a number of, uh, of requirements that you have to go through. Uh, and every flight school is a little bit different in terms of the curriculum that they give you. But I think it's very important. This really served me well because I had to go through, I think, seven instructors before I finished. I mean, I had a primary instructor, but I would, I would work with other instructors as time allowed because I was kind of on a very tight schedule as far as when I was able to be at the airport. And if my primary instructor wasn't available, I had to take whoever else was available in order to continue my training. And instructor availability is going to be a challenge that you face. I think it's very important to understand where you are in the process and what you need to do next so that you can go to a, to an instructor and just say, Hey, um, we were, uh, we were working on accelerated stalls last time. Um, I need a little bit of more work with that. Can we go up and do accelerated stalls or can we bang out some pattern work or can we do, um, can I do my, my instrument, um, requirement now, something like that, um, just to be able to, to keep things rolling and understand where you are in the process and, uh, and be able to communicate that clearly to an instructor. So my advice, and I'd be interested to hear what you guys think about this, but never lose control of your curriculum. Always make sure that you're on top of that. Absolutely. And that's something, you know, when I look back as a, as, you know, 17, 18 year old working on my private initially, that's not something I was, I was great at, certainly not at the beginning. Um, And as you know, I had, I was lucky to have terrific instructors who very much had that, that control. But, you know, when it, when you would do a stage check with another instructor, oh, it's it's like, you know, any teenager, what'd you learn in school today, son? Nothing. You know, it's like, well, where are you training? I don't know. I just do what he says. You, you've got to be more, you, you will, you will have greater success and you will enjoy the process more. Um, and, and I think you'll come to learn this as we all did at some stage of our training is that if, if you are proactive, you take that control and it, it starts with choosing your instructor and the, and, or the school and the environment and making those time commitments. But it, it, it carries right through to the curriculum as well. 
Yeah, same. When I was in school, uh, our big thing was we were losing instructors to the airlines. So you would get really comfortable with an instructor. You'd get so many lessons in, and then your instructor was gone because he got hired for the airlines. And then you found yourself kind of floating in the wind. And, and I wasn't, you know, I didn't have that advice. I, did, I didn't know where to where to turn. And same thing. It'd be like, well, what were you working on? Uh, touch and goes, you know, like, were you doing good? I guess, you know, the plane's still usable and, you know, so, uh, uh, yeah, definitely know where you are in your, in your training. God. And just approach it with your eyes open, uh, be conscious, be proactive and, uh, and, and just make that decision and make that commitment to learn. And it's, we've said it uh, several times already just in this episode, it is absolutely worth it. But speaking of this episode, I'm looking at the clock and, and uh, 10 seconds ago, we were only 10 minutes in and now all of a sudden we're going, uh, we're going long. I know uh, we all had other things we wanted to talk about. So um, let's put a part two, uh, part two on the books uh, some point soon. Um, I think we've, we've laid some good groundwork in terms of that commitment to get started, what it takes to get started, and a mindset you should have to get started. So next time, let's step through and really talk about the phases of the training and and uh, what tips and advice uh, the three of us have there. Oh, I'll tell you what. Maybe we can make it interactive. Let's um, let's ask our uh, listeners if um, if you have specific questions for us. And one item we really didn't get to that uh, we were hoping we would is uh, Chris is our resident air traffic controller here, and he can uh, give you a lot of tips about talking to air traffic control, which a lot of students have trouble with. But if you're a current student and you're having trouble, or if you're thinking about getting into it and um, you have questions. Um, Send an email to is it feedback at feedback at eaa.org yeah. feedback at eaa.org and um, we'll, uh, we'll we'll give it a few weeks and then uh, do another recording so um, hopefully uh, we can answer some of your questions that's great and you could you could also uh, post those questions uh, every one of our podcast episodes has an associated uh, uh, page on our blog our blog is uh, inspire.ea.org so you'll find the podcast episodes there and you can play them right from there uh, and also there's a comment section so leave those comments there. Um, Speaking of which, uh, we're always grateful for that, those comments and feedback. Uh, so we hope uh, we hope those continue to uh, to come in. We love the reviews on iTunes and uh, anywhere else you might consume the podcast. That email that comes into feedback at ea.org. Uh, all of those uh, good vibes are why we're able to continue uh, continue producing these episodes. Uh, so keep the feedback coming. Keep listening. Uh, share your your thoughts and your questions with us, and we we'll look forward to catching up to you next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot.